Well, grab your iPhone, or if you have one of those inferior droid instruments, uh, <laughs> grab your camera and get up as close as you can to the barrack steps and look around. And what are you going to take a picture of? You're standing with this crowd. Get as close as you can to Paul. What are you going to capture for tonight's Jerusalem News broadcast? A seething mob? Hungry for violence? Maybe a captain's fear? Maybe the disgusting piety of the religious leaders? Or maybe it's a close-up of sweat and dirt running down a child's face? Maybe it's the seeming calm of Paul in the middle of this crisis. Seems like he may be the only one left in his right mind. But before we go on with the story that you've just heard, let's put a pause in this familiar scene. I know that you're all familiar with it. And look at a little bit of background, just as kind of a reminder of what's been going on in the book of Acts. I've been kind of hanging out in the book of Acts to see what's been going on uh, for quite a while now, just to watch the story evolve of the early church. The church has been blossoming from the day of Pentecost, uh, through the life of the various disciples, through the people who are following Jesus across the countries, and it's spread across the world. And then in these last few chapters, as you just heard, these, Paul makes his final visits to his church plants just to check in. And what a dismal, had to be a dismal trip. It reminds you of Jesus heading to Jerusalem as well, doesn't it? Saying goodbye to all of these people, knowing that he probably would not be returning, at, less, at least not in the way he was going now. He'd be in prison, or at least in chains. Of course, every leader has to, shall I pull this up to shut the feedback down a little bit? Certainly the leaders are all warning him not to go. They're afraid for his safety. And then, of course, when he arrives in Jerusalem, they put him through a purification process, like J Paul needs a Jewish purification process. But he goes off with some other men to go to the, the temple, be purified again. And then just as he's ending the ceremony, what happens? Somebody starts a rumor that he's not quite Jewish enough. And the lie was that he'd showed the, shown the temple or he'd, yeah, he'd shown off the temple and walked somebody who was a Gentile as a tourist through the temple. Probably if he had charged a fee and he'd actually shared the fee with him, that would have been okay. But since he was doing it for free, and we don't even know if he did it. Reminds me of my Facebook, doesn't it yours? You know, rumors start, they go on and on and on, and they build, and then even when the truth is told, people will never go back and admit that it was wrong. But let's unpack this story a little bit as we look at this um, scenario and see what it might say to us as U.S. Americans in 2017, both as leaders and then also how might it impact the people that we serve and the people we have influence over every day or at least once a week when we meet, as Jeff said, in our worship experiences. Pick out a few highlights. These won't be brand new to you. I don't pretend to have some great new insights, but maybe we can share this together and, and discover some new things. I am impressed that Paul, as usual, starts with the context of the people. Um, of course, like those people who stood around my mom's casket when they didn't know what to say, and you've done this if you've done a funeral, people say dumb stuff when they don't know what to say. So here's the, you know, people at my mom's casket said, well, maybe God needed a new organist in heaven. I'm going, no, she was killed by a drunk driver. Um, and they probably could find Bach or somebody else who would have done a little better job. But people don't know what to say, so they say dumb things. And here's this commander. Um, he didn't know what to say, so he says, do you say Greek? And if it was me, I would have, well, probably not, because I would have been terrified for my life. But I would have said something uh, snarky like, uh, no, I'm just testing out my new gift of tongues. But here's Paul speaking to him in Greek, and he says, do you speak Greek? Uh, no, I just, whatever you heard. 
Uh, but we note again that as Paul traveled the world, wasn't that part of his life that everywhere he went, and I've actually heard that as a knock on him, standing because he didn't condemn people, standing in their culture and trying to communicate to them through their cultural uh, world. So first to the commander in Rome, the Roman commander, and he speaks to them in Greek, which was his first language. Then he turns to the Jews, and you notice the impact of his speaking their first language to him, to them. They stop still, stop still. They're quiet to listen because he's speaking to them. He shows respect to them in connecting to them in their cultural context. Changing languages, I wish I could do that. In fact, that's why Carolyn and I are studying, well, to be honest, Carolyn is studying Spanish. Uh, she actually does it every day. I do it once a month. Uh, <laughs> because we really do want to learn to communicate more effectively to the people that are a majority of our culture, culture here in Central Florida. Um, it is important to c communicate with people in their first language. And uh, for those of you who are Spanish speakers who keep reminding me that Spanish is the language of heaven, I'm trying to get ready. Amen. I'm, I'm anticipating I might get there after, unless I finish this sermon. <laughs> Another thing I notice is that Paul addresses the men. Why would he address the men? He says, brothers and fathers. Why not hey y'all in some good southern Jewish accent? But I think it's because it was a patriarchal culture. Or maybe that's true anyway. The men were the only ones present? Probably not. The women certainly weren't allowed to have a calming voice, which they probably would have done if they'd had a chance to speak. It's interesting that he doesn't speak to them. We're not told. But maybe because he knew who held the power. And Paul never seemed to be afraid to confront power and speak into power. And you see that in the few chapters unfolding after this scenario where he speaks to kings and emperors. Um, and then as we've had read for us, note that Paul takes time to lay out his, his pedigree. Paul knew that these Jewish left-wing men, left-wing, ah, you know where my mind is, left-brained, let me get that right. <laughs> I hope you get that off of this. This, this is going to go to Kentucky, and they'll read that. They'll hear that and know that what I was really thinking. But Paul knew that these left-brained men would be satisfied and want to hear about a pedigree because it would impress them. Not that Paul's trying to build up himself, but he knows that that's how they function in life. They've watched their leaders parade around in robes. Jesus was confronting this regularly. Of course, I'm born a Jew. You know, you think I'm not Jewish enough? I was born a Jew. Not only that, I was born in an important city. Of course, Jerusalem's a pretty good city, but I was raised in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, and they certainly knew who that was because you hear Gamaliel other times through the, the book of Acts. I know the Mosaic Law, and I was jealous, zealous just like you. I was zealous just like you. Notice that he's giving a compliment to them in the middle of their trying to kill him. He says, I was just like you trying to kill people of the way, people who were following Jesus. In fact, I was on the inside with the religious leaders. I was doing what you're trying to do to me. So what an identity for him to take in the middle of this case of, I mean, this, this crisis around his life and around his existence at that moment. But then he jumps into the story, which is the most important part. And this is really a summary of Acts chapter 9, where Luke first lays out the, the account. And this is Paul recounting it for us and for the people there. And notice he says, this is my story. 
this is my story. And it's, as I said earlier, he repeats this at least three times in the following chapters before he gets to Rome. But notice that he doesn't give a theological discourse. This is not a matter of unloading a content lecture on the people. In fact, if he'd studied learning styles under Bernice McCarthy or David Colby, would have known that only about 10 to 15 people, 15, 10 to 15% of people are learners who learn through that kind of model, through content delivery. But story always connects. Story always connects. It pulls the listeners in. Why are movies so important to us? Why do we watch videos? Why do we have drama? Because it connects to the insides of us. It relates to all the learning styles, and so it, it pulls everybody in because it's story. And in essence, he's saying, you may not like what you hear, but you can't refute what's happened to me. Story. He says, look, I was chosen by God for God's mission. How can you resist that mission, though, <laughs> if you're Paul? How can you resist a mission when you're knocked off your horse, made blind, and said, now get up and go follow me? Uh, it's not like you can just say, uh, God, I'd rather not, but no, he didn't have that choice. But I think he's really setting, setting us up for his final statement that, that comes flaming at us, or at least at them. This statement where he says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the, and you used the word outsiders, but he used the word Gentiles. It was like he swore at them. He just got the word Gentiles out, and they go ballistic. They start throwing dust, yelling, tearing their clothes, all that great hot Jewish mess. You can imagine. But he reminded them that they had lost their mission set up in the covenant with Abraham. And that was too far. They were commissioned to what? Maybe some of you remember it. Bless the nations. Bless the nations. You remember the story of Abram, who follows God's direction from near Mesopotamia, ends up into what's now near Israel, or what's now Israel. God calls him to join in a covenant, an agreement where God will make Abraham and his future generations a blessing for, to the world, and here it is, if he and his offspring obey God's direction. If they obey God's direction. Abraham set the standard for future generations of Jewish people. Can we translate Abraham's missional standard through the life of Jesus? Let me ask that again. Would it be fair to translate Abraham's missional standard through the life of Jesus? I think we might call it the great commandment, love God and love people, and a great commission to go make disciples, the mission. But dare we name the real issue here, and I'll dare to name it Jewish exceptionalism. The idea that they were the privileged few. They were on a campaign to make Israel great again. And Alan and Deb Hirsch tell us that most churches have that same issue. Most of us live and work in churches that have those walls around us where you can belong only after you begin to smell, taste, and look like us. Sure, the Jews were great at keeping the rules and traditions, they were great at keeping the gates closed, though, to people who were not like them. They kept drawing. They were committed to community, but that community got smaller and smaller, and they began to define who was in and who was out. It's interesting. Just yesterday, as I was <laughs> had finished the sermon, and I got this 
text. Actually, it's an email from Seth Godin. Some of you know his name. He's a marketer. Uh, not known, I don't think, as a follower of Jesus. But it hit. I said, I've got to include this in the sermon. It's called Outsiders. It's a blog from him. You can't have insiders unless you have outsiders, he says. And you can't have winners unless you have losers. That doesn't mean that you're required to create insiders and outsiders. All it means is that when people begin to measure themselves only in comparison to others, how do I rank, then you need to accept the impact of those choices. He's not a believer. I think he's talking about the church. Actually, he's talking about marketing. But it's entirely possible to be, hear this, it's entirely possible to be happy and engaged and productive without creating this dynamic. But in a culture based on scarcity, it's often easier to award or deduct points or keep a scoreboard instead. Some of you are in class with me right now, and we're using a book about keeping the right kind of scoreboard. And Jesus certainly took on the religious leaders regularly for this, for drawing the circle too small. In fact, I, <laughs> I think as I've been reading through the Gospels and then into Acts, and I watched the, the disciples try to live out the life of Jesus, I think Jesus pushed the envelope on purpose lots of times. I think he said, hey, guys, it's the Sabbath. Let's go to the temple and see if we can find somebody to heal. We can really tick them off one more time. I don't think it was just an accident that those people always were in the tab temple ready to be healed when Jesus decided to show up. I wonder if he was just kept pushing the envelope trying to break down some of those barriers. But how had they gotten so far away from God's dream for them to bless the nations? I don't have a pat answer for that, but here's some ideas that I've been toying with. <clears throat> one, they had experienced too many years of special privilege. And I think we see that all through the Old Testament. They were blessed, screwed it up. Blessed, screwed it up. Here they are. They had Jesus, they screw it up. I think they were afraid of unknown others. They'd been together so long as themselves, they were afraid of those unknown other people. I think they were not intentionally engaging with those others, whoever those others are, which we, it's fun to put those others out there somewhere. And you remember that the, it, to get from the north part of the kingdom or the north part of their country to the south part or the other way, from, what was it, Jerusalem to Galilee, they'd walk clear around Samaria. I guess if they were marathoners in training, that'd be great, but not for just getting to one place, from one place to the, other, to the other. And I think they misunderstood God. They saw God as an exclusive God, so they created a God in their own image, and that's a pretty tiny God. Easy to worship a God that's in our own image. But instead of worshiping God, their nationality, their culture, their security had become their idol. And how would dare, Paul dare to mess with that? And it's interesting that this whole thing started because of a rumor that Paul wasn't Jewish enough, even though he's in the middle of a Jewish purification process. But they had drawn the circle too small to even include, even include him who was trying to prove how Jewish he was. And so it's sort of like he now took his finger and bores it into their chest and says, remember, just like I am sent, you were sent to love on the people that you hate. That was too much for them. They couldn't conceive of what Paul said in Galatians 3.28, where he really puts it clearly. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And that's the painful stuff. <laughs> but let's flip the coin and look at the other side of this. That's probably some reasons why they couldn't understand their, their mission and lost their mission. But what might it have looked like if the Jews had decided to bless the nations? And I don't think there's any better place to look than look at Jesus. <laughs> Jesus gave them a dis demonstrations all over the place for, for the years that he was in ministry. And the Jews missed it. But he modeled it for them. In fact, they were crucified. In fact, they crucified him for living too freely and too inclusively and too exclusively, inclusively, I should say, not exclusively. But I think blessing the nations for them at least meant intentionally engaging the outcast. Intentionally engaging the outcast. It wasn't an accident that Jesus took the shortcut through Samaria. It wasn't an accident. It was the middle of the day when he sat down at Jacob's well. It wasn't an accident that he just happened to be there when this woman came out and a Samaritan woman who he talked to. That wasn't an accident. He was intentionally engaging the outcasts. I think blessing the nations probably also includes certainly living as a servant to all people. And uh, we see an example, lots of examples of that in Jesus' life, but the primary one I use in class is Jesus at the Last Supper, where he said, come on, somebody go get a servant and clean our feet. We're filthy. No, he didn't. What did he do? Took off his own clothes, grabbed a bucket filled with water, and started washing people's feet and says, this is what leadership looks like. And this is really of special interest to me as a, as a leadership professor because although Paul sometimes is a hothead and he has plenty of stories of how he treated Mark and other people, he built leaders wherever he went. He didn't leave his mentor, he didn't leave the churches that he started without mentoring leaders into place. He encouraged, he nurtured them. He was a servant to them. And when there was a need, and this is really important because this is what leaders do, he led the way in sacrificing first and sacrificing the most. He led the way in sacrificing first and sacrificing the most. That's what servant leaders do. Not like George Fisher who killed Kodak. We were in Rochester, New York, when Kodak was just beginning to start its decline. It's, I think it's, it, it may still be in business, but it's barely struggling along. Most of what used to be buildings is now vacant lots. I mean, vacant acres and acres and acres and acres. George Fisher got bonuses every quarter because he could keep the stock prices and values up. So he was making millions of dollars in bonuses, living in the largest, most expensive house in our county laying off 10,000 and 20,000 people at a time. He got the bonus. He screwed over the people. That's not leaders. In fact, I picked up a great quote from Dr. Steve Harper yesterday. You can tell what leaders value by seeing those whom they make and leave vulnerable. Hear that again. You can tell what leaders value by seeing those whom they leave or make vulnerable. Robert Greenleaf, who we use in class, who really made servant leadership popular in the business world would agree with that statement. And I'm sure that when I made that statement, you can probably immediately think of leaders either nationally or other places, maybe in some of the ministries you're familiar with, uh, who are not those kind of servant leaders. And so that's part of learning to bless the nations. How do we live as servant leaders? I think blessing the nations also means making others, others' lives better because they've been around us. And there's no question that that happened with Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus went, people were encouraged. They were changed. They were healed. They were fed. 
things were always better after Jesus had walked through there. And then finally, and you can probably think of lots of other ways that blessing the nations might get lived out, but blessing the nations, standing with those who are marginalized. And that's similar to engaging the outcast, but notice that Jesus always had skin in the game. Partially we call that incarnation. But secondly, I can't get over every story with lepers. Can you imagine the impact on the lepers when he touched them? The gospel writers didn't accidentally put that in there. These are people who never got touched. Can you imagine the touch of skin on their heads? They hadn't felt it in years. The pheromones that were passed from him to them because he touched their skin. That's amazing. That's incarnation. And you know the familiar passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus talks about taking care of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the, those who need clothing, those who are sick, those who are in prison. He says, that's how I'm going to judge you. I mean, those are just a few examples of how we live out this standing with the marginalized. And the Jewish people were not able to live out God's love for the world because they'd not yet discovered that the sun didn't revolve around them. And sure, they could tell their own rich stories. They could sit around campfires, talk and celebrate their heritage as Jewish people. But they forgot that ultimately the story wasn't about them. This was a God story to bless the world through them. But unless we <laughs> get too arrogant and say, well, but that was those Jewish people, let's put our own names into some of this story. So what? For us in U.S. American seminary setting, many of us ministering in local congregations will be working with people this weekend or we're at least influencing people in groups, whether we're actually the pastor or not. Uh, what does it mean to us? How might we live this out rather than just judging the Jews for the bad way they lived toward Paul or others or what they did to Jesus? You can add to this list, but let me give you a couple of ideas or a few ideas that have come to, come to my mind. First is that God can powerfully use our Jesus story. God can powerfully use our Jesus story. When we're blessing people, we have the opportunity to share our story. Then we can relax and let the Holy Spirit transform people. Discipleship means living incarnationally in people's lives, not trying to rack up conversions. Catch the difference? Discipleship means living incarnationally in people's lives, not trying to rack up conversions. So we can get a few more notches on our belt. I think another idea is that God wants to actively heal our attitudes, our values, our prejudices, things that are not like Jesus. I also think we can join God's mission when we make life about others, and this is where it's going to get close to home for all of us, and get out of our church and seminary offices. One of our students, because in almost every class, David can attest to this, <laughs> so, so can Susan. <laughs> we have every week, almost every week, our students are on mission someplace. They have to declare their mission and then report back in the following week. A semester ago, one of our pastoral students came back and reported that he'd gone to visit a single mom in his neighborhood. And he thought it was really a great idea. He'd seen her down there for a while, two or three doors down, and he thought it was a great idea that he'd go visit her finally. You know, he's on mission. When he said, I'm pastor so-and-so, and 
I just wanted to visit you. I want to get to know you. I've seen you down here, and our family has seen you down here. And we want to know that we'd, be love, we'd love to do anything for you we can. And she said, where were you three years ago when my husband died? Missed mission all that time until he's appointed to do it in a class requirement. But we can join God's mission when we make life about others and get out of our church and seminary offices. Remember, when we look, and this, this just blows me away. Think about this, and, and Alan Hirsch has put me onto this. Remember that when we look out across our congregations or the groups we influence this weekend, every set of eyes is a potential missionary. Every set of eyes is a potential missionary. If, if you grew up like I did, who were the cool people in ministry? For me, it was the missionaries. But what was a missionary? Where did they have to live in order to be an official superstar missionary? Someplace across water. In Florida, we have water everywhere. You can cross water. So we're all missionaries. But we made that kind of artificial distinction. In fact, our denomination divided up its giving that way between home and missions because missions was those people across the water someplace. Every Jesus follower is placed in a mission field to do missional work every day. Whether it's being kind to a server or meeting our neighbor or blessing a coworker, and we have the opportunity as leaders to help our people, help our people grow their eyes to see where God is at work and then help them relax to join in God's mission and bless the nations. And is that cool or what? That's so amazing. Let's pray. Dear God, thanks for your word that touches our minds. We ask that you'd give it roots. May it grow deep into our hearts to be warmed and applied by your spirit. Then may you move and use our hands and our feet so we are doers and not just hearers only. In your name we pray.